Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Growth Equation Podcast. Thanks for listening. We've got a special guest this week, but before we get into that, just a reminder, if you have not checked out our Patreon group, please consider doing so. What do you get if you sign up for our Patreon? Simple. You get monthly book clubs where we discuss the latest best-selling works in um, in the performance world. We have best-selling authors like Dave Epstein, Cal Newport, Alex Hutchinson, and others on to discuss things. You also get a quarterly mastermind group. You get early access to this podcast. You get special you know, discussion groups and other guides that we have created to help your performance. So join on in. How do you do so? Go to patreon.com slash the growth equation and join us. So let's get to today's special guest, Kyle Klashenko, who is the co-founder, co-owner, and head coach at Strength Ratio, the gym that Brad trains at. Yes, these are the people who help Brad turn from runner into meathead. Just kidding. He's not a meathead. Just a guy who can lift heavy objects off the ground. And what Kyle's going to discuss today is the foundations of health and well-being. They have a free little ebook they put together that is research-backed that outlines the basics, much like we do here at The Growth Equation, the basics to nutrition, sleep, blood work, pain management, mental health, and more. It just gets to the the stuff that works. So we're going to go over all of that and more in today's conversation. So if you love health, well-being, and a little bit of performance, have a listen. Here we go. Kyle, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. We're uh, we're really looking forward to um, to going through the new book that y'all just put out on uh, the fundamentals, the guidelines of of health and longevity. And I think that our audience, uh, this is a topic that they care about, and that people are hungry for really good, genuine information for some signal amidst a whole lot of noise. So. It'll be a great conversation. But before we get into that, uh, I know you well because I train at the gym that you co-founded and co-own. Um, but for those that are just meeting you, uh, why don't you give a little background on yourself? When did you first get into strength coaching? Um, and when did you kind of expand beyond just the fundamentals of strength and conditioning to really think about what makes for, for health and performance more broadly? Yeah, so as mentioned, my name's Kyle Klachenko, um, co-owner, co-founder of Strength Ratio. Um, I'm, I think with a lot of people, I first got into all of this, just played a lot of sports growing up, so always had a passion for it um, in school, in college, ended up majoring in business, but this was what I spent most of my time doing instead of always studying for business, uh, because it was definitely my passion. Um, but that business degree has definitely served me well in you know, what I do now. Um, and really for the last seven years since graduating, it's been all that I've done. I've worked with many, many clients and 
expanding past strength and conditioning has just been working with clients, you know, these things come up, um, more talks around health and longevity. And, uh, you know, obviously performance is very important to many people and the people that I work with, but all of these kind of talks around health and longevity, uh, creep up and they think, okay, how, what else can I be doing to make sure, you know, even after some of these performance goals happen, I can make sure I have these other aspects of my life, you know, kind of set in place. So how, let me, let me take you back when you first got in, you're, you know, majoring in business, you're saying, Hey, I'm really interested in strength, conditioning, coaching, all that stuff. How has your view of the field that you thought you were getting into changed from like that moment to where you're at now and, and kind of what you see your role is? Uh, I think the, hopefully this gets to what you're asking. I think the biggest thing has just been the, um, when, when first beginning, you think there's an answer to things. Um, and then there's like one answer that kind of tells you what you need to do and how it should be done. And then the more that I've kind of learned and uh, experienced, you kind of go into the gray area more often, I would say, and realize how much of it is heuristics and principles. But each person you work with, each experience you have is um, a little bit more individual. And there's some bandwidth for uh, what works and what doesn't. And we're all kind of like guessing and checking as we go. So that I think has been the biggest change since I first started. Yeah, I love that. As as a fellow coach, I appreciate that because it is like early on you, you almost have this like false sense of certainty, right? And then you, the more you learn, you're like, oh, this really is like these are heuristics, but it is is a game of figuring out what works best for the individual. So. Let's dive in to the foundations book that you just put out. Uh, it'll be attached in the show notes for everybody, uh, the PDF version. And you've got seven key elements, physical activity, healthy body weight and composition, sufficient high quality sleep, monitor the use of addictive substances, routine medical care pain management, and mental health. And I think we're just going to go down the list and have a conversation about each of these building blocks. So let's start with regular physical activity. When you think about physical activity for the general population, so this is not for an elite athlete that is trying to win a medal at the Olympics or be national class or even be all state for that matter. This is somebody that might be uh, author like me or an attorney or a physician or a vice president at a big corporation or a restaurant owner, you get the point. People who are not training for competition. When you think about regular physical activity for health, what does that mean to you? And how did you come to this guideline? So I think you broke up for a second there, but uh, essentially I'm hearing that um, how to think about physical activity for the general person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I like kind of how it's broken down into physical activity is usually unplanned or structured movement, where exercise is more of that structured movement. So physical activity is, as we describe in the book, um, really anything that kind of 
gets you breathing a little bit more than at rest. So it could be daily walks. It could be cleaning your house, mowing your lawn, things like that, where maybe you have a tiny bit of sweat going on or your breath is picking up a little bit. Um, and uh, the guidelines come from the American Heart Association. So that is just based on all the research that they've compiled over the years and uh, what they've kind of written out. All right. So what are the guidelines? I know you said that it depends is the ultimate answer, but you know, general heuristics for people around uh, physical activity. Yeah. So what they have written out is 150 to 300 minutes of moderate aerobic activity and then 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous activity. Um, I tend to find that those, the wording of that uh, can get confusing because you see vigorous and you think, oh, I have to like be doing like high intensity interval training or something. Um, but vigorous activity is just more of that planned exercise. So, or maybe I should restart with moderate activity is just breathing a little bit harder than at rest. So a simple walk, as mentioned, could achieve those guidelines. And then vigorous activity is just, you know, a step or two above that. So that could be a very light jog. So vigorous, I think, can be a little bit misleading. Um, and there's often uh, metabolic equivalents associated with that, which is just a way of determining kind of energy. Um, but we won't go into that because I find that those are a little bit impractical. So I'm, I'm glad you brought clarity there because I think this is one of the uh, most fundamental misunderstood things for the general population, which is a walk counts as for many people uh, as that moderate activity. And then a jog counts like can count as that vigorous activity. And I think, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, but often what we get is we have people who think like, oh, it doesn't count unless I'm like, you know, can't out, completely out of breath on the ground afterward. Yeah. Like that's, that's what vigorous means. And I'm yeah, glad yeah. You're, you're dispelling that. Yeah. I think uh, as we were putting this book or guide together, um, one of the things that I wasn't even aware of because I'm very much into working out. Um, I love training people, but was just kind of how, I don't know if little's the word, but how little the amount needs to be for the known health benefits that are often described. Because I think as someone who loves to train, when you list off the health benefits, you kind of have a certain perspective of what that training would look like and how to achieve that. But in reality, it's these very simple things like walking, um, body weight workouts, et cetera, that can achieve all the known health benefits that are usually listed. So to be really clear, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity, which can include walking, gardening, uh, and anything up from there, along with 75 to a hundred minutes of more structured movement that is at a higher intensity. Um, uh, or, it oh, can be or, or so, so, yeah. so if you're just doing 45 minute walks every day, brisk walking, then in terms of where the evidence is, that's enough. Um, or if you don't want to do that, you could do a 15 minute workout every day that is higher in intensity, 15 minute jog, 15 minutes of body weight, kettlebell swings, whatever. Yeah. 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 And, uh, we have this written a couple pages down, but things like high intensity interval training aren't really, um, and again, that's, you know, multiple steps above what we're even talking about here. 
it's not really known how that fits into these guidelines, but that would help achieve many of these things as well at a much smaller um, amount. So it could be a big mix of things that help you achieve each of these guidelines. And then you broke it out in the book into aerobic and resistance training. Mm-hmm. So aerobic training, my understanding of this, I'm the novice in this conversation, is mainly using oxygen for fuel. Um and resistance training is more of like the ATP cycle. Uh, but again, this is getting into the weeds. So less reliant on oxygen. I think for the general population, resistance training involves pushing against something or picking something up. And aerobic training is just using your body. Can you talk about the difference between the two in your mind? And then also kind of the benefits of each. And do you need both? Is one enough? Uh, so on and so forth. Um. That's an interesting question. I know that for particularly untrained people, things like running, which would you know classically be aerobic, do serve as some form of resistance training because of the impact of running. Um, but when I tend to think of resistance training, I think about doing movements through a full range of motion. So if you can visualize a squat, or any sort of like knee bending activity that would be trying to go down to your fullest range of motion, which I'm not sure if I can describe exactly what that means (laughs) through words, but um, sitting down to a chair. For some people, that's going to be enough resistance training because you're moving your body weight and your body weight can act as a form of external, some sort of weight that you're moving. So for some people, that could be resistance training. For others, They're going to need external load, like a barbell or a dumbbell, things like that. But exerting force against something would be how I would think about resistance training. And then aerobic activity would be more making your heart pump. So in the guide, you say two or more uh, moderate to vigorous resistance training sessions involving all major muscle groups. For the novice listener, maybe you could throw out some exercises or some examples of what that would look like. Yeah, so ones that we have listed in the book are things like a back squat, a deadlift, bench press, shoulder press, equivalent body weight things would be air squat, uh, hip hinge, or glute bridge could even work, and then push-ups and uh, dips. Great. That's fantastic. So you've also got some, um, some high intensity interval training examples in, in the book. And I guess I'd be curious on where you see these fitting in, because I think where a lot of people run into challenges, myself included, and certainly in the coaching that I do is it starts really simple and then suddenly it can feel like a lot. So Mm -hmm. I tend to default to, hey, just take a brisk 30-minute walk once a day and let's start there. Once somebody has that base and they're listening to this and they're like, I want to take it to the next level, what would you then layer on top of that? Or how would you Um, think about asking the right questions to help that person figure out what to layer on top of that? Yeah, I think if you're talking within the context of health, then those brisk 30-minute walks would be plenty they might eventually have to turn into a jog if they get fit enough. 
Um, but then again, they might just start walking faster. I think, um, yeah, if you think in the context of health, that's, that's, that's enough because you just need to meet those guidelines. And to my knowledge, um, that's kind of like your, you know, your baseline. If you wanted to go up from there, I think you're starting to move more towards performance in terms of layering things on, or you just take into context the person's life. So let's say that they can't do 30 minutes a day anymore. Maybe you plug in one or two of these hit sessions and, you know, it's not a, a one-to-one, but you're probably getting the similar kind of health outcomes. Um, and as we said in the book, it's not really known how the hit fit in exactly with these guidelines, um, to my knowledge at least, but doing one or two of those a week could achieve similar outcomes. Does that get to your question a little bit? Yeah, it does. And I've always heard with high intensity interval training, it, it feels like once every three months, there's a story in the Atlantic Health or New York Times or Wall Street Journal about, you know, the 30 second exercise program. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that people don't understand how hard you actually have to go in those 30 seconds. And um, I think a lot of those studies start in untrained people. So I think if you have a decent base of health, going all out for 30 seconds twice a week, you know, maybe there's a place for that, but it certainly ought not be the the only thing. Plus, it's just not fun for a lot of people. Yeah, I think I would, for most people, um, start with physical activity or daily physical activity and try to, you know, structure your days so that you can get in movement. Um so that you can achieve like the physical activity guidelines. Um, but if you are so busy that you can't do anything, hit can plays a role, but I'm sure um, most of us have heard the same before that working out for an hour a day and then being sedentary for the rest of the day is yes, it can kind of um, uh, still achieve the health outcomes, but you still want to make sure that you're moving. For, for best health and longevity. So just because you work out for an hour a day doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything and be sedentary the rest of the time. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, you brought that up because there's no free lunches, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so we've, we've gone through the first part, which is the exercise, the combination of aerobic and strength or resistance training. Um, the next big factor in your guide is maintaining a healthy body weight and composition. And I'm wondering if you can outline for the listener what the big ideas in this are and what they should be worried about because there's a lot of a lot of quick fixes, hacks, etc in this area and it's kind of a wasteland. So yeah, um, yeah go for it. Yeah, I think uh, nutrition, even more so than physical activity, is an area where uh, people get very, or maybe I should say needlessly complex um, and try to really have all these hacks or special, you know, techniques that should achieve X. But um, what we have written out here is you know, kind of the building blocks of 
any kind of healthy body weight and composition, one starts with calories. So making sure that you're eating an appropriate amount of calories for your daily activity level. Um, and really that's, that's number one. Um, if you're eating too many calories, you're going to gain weight. And we want to make sure that um, we're not doing that. Um, I think people tend to focus on food quality and supplements before calories, but I think it really goes calories and then food quality. And then from there, there's kind of, there's multiple pyramids you could look up of how to kind of um, order those in sequence. Um, but what we have laid out here is just the nutrition building blocks being the calorie balance, food composition, macronutrients, nutrient timing, hydration, and then supplements. And supplements really are just like, if you were to think about that pyramid, the very tip and a very small, small point of that. Um, and I think I've lost the the thread of the question you asked, but does that kind of get? Yeah, no, bit? that does. So let's let's go into some of these because I think you guys point out some interesting things. So on nutrient timing, which is a hot button topic, you say, and I'll quote: "There is no such thing as an anabolic window." Can you elaborate <laughs> on that for our our listeners? Yeah, so um, I would say largely. This isn't emphasized as much as it used to be, but you know, people used to be very uh, big on the importance of having protein immediately post-workout uh, to maximize any sort of muscle gain or progress. And um, it's really come down to making sure and whole that you're eating an appropriate amount of protein throughout the whole day. Um, and even with that, uh, newer research kind of shows that even the quality of your protein um, so it could be from kind of any source. If you're getting the total amount of protein, that it's not as big of a deal in terms of, especially how health outcomes. Um, but it's even arguable for if you do have some sort of performance aspect that um, as long as you're getting total protein across the day, that you're pretty you're pretty set. Uh, so yeah, the anabolic window really isn't a thing. Um, if anything, it's probably better to make sure you're eating. Um, or if you're, if you did some sort of workout and you want performance gains that carbohydrates, uh, and appropriate amount of calories after your workout would be more important. So on that note about protein, um, you often see these energy drinks with like 80 grams of protein or whatever. And I've always heard that the body can absorb more than 40 grams of protein within like a two hour window. Is that where nutrient, well, first off, is that true? And second off, then if you're trying to hit a protein goal, does it make sense to just space them out throughout the day? Yeah, to, to my knowledge, um, that's not true in terms of how much you can digest or uh, kind of uh, process naturally in the body. Um, you probably would want to break it up across the day just because I don't know if you'd want to, whatever protein source you're having, you probably wouldn't have that want to have that all in one sitting. Uh, not only would that probably just be uncomfortable to eat like 10 chicken breasts at once, <laughs> um, but um, there's no reason to do that. But uh, yeah, th to my knowledge, there's some nuance there, but um, you don't need to worry about too large of a bolus of protein. And it probably makes the most sense to break it out evenly across a day, though, if you can't do that, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. Again, the importance there is on the total protein intake on a daily basis. All right. I've got two more questions um, on this topic. 
The first relates to um, how to think about weight and in particular body composition, because those are two very different things. So Mm -hmm. can you talk about the difference between weight and body composition and then the guidelines or the metrics that you've included around health risk here? Um, Because I think this is a topic that, again, there's a whole lot of um, a whole lot of noise and Mm -hmm. not a lot of signal. Um, so I think it would be, it would be really important to, um, to elaborate there. Yeah. So, you know, I guess weight would just be your total body mass and composition would be, um, what's the composition of that mass. So do you have more muscle or more fat tissue? Um, and, uh, and sorry, what was your second question there again, Brad? how to think about what actually makes for health. So the example is my BMI puts me at overweight. And Mm -hmm. as of like two or three weeks ago, it might've been obese, but based on the metrics that you include in your guide, I have no increased risk for early morbidity or mortality because my waist meets your criteria. So how does one make sense of that? Yeah. So I would think of, BMI, and then what we include here is waist circumference um, as two proxies. So we write in here that even if your waist circumference, um, and you could just take, you know, a measuring tape around your waist, puts you in areas of increased health risk, that it's just kind of a proxy for farther exploration. So the BMI as a standalone metric, um, in terms of national averages, is quite accurate in uh, predicting if someone is at increased risk. Um, And it can be, again, for farther exploration. And same thing as waist circumference. It kind of serves as proxies for farther exploration versus, hey, just because you're in these categories, you're now unhealthy or um, something's wrong. So you can still be in obese or at increased health risk and still be healthy. Though with the the BMI, I do know that, or I shouldn't say I do know, um, there is increased risk being in the obese category, even if you're all muscle. Um, Just because of the larger body mass, your heart is working a little bit harder to circulate all the blood, et cetera. Um, So you still want to make sure that you're keeping track of some of the other things we have listed in here, like blood pressure, um, et cetera. Does that kind of get to your question? Yeah, it does. It gets to my question. Um, I guess what I'm hearing is that if you have a BMI that is overweight, but your waist circumference is within the normal range that you lay out, uh, you might know off the top of your head, I have to pull up these numbers. So for a male, it is around 94 centimeters. For a female, it's 80 centimeters. Um or less, then you're probably okay. It might just mean that you are carrying a lot of lean muscle mass. So that you weigh a lot, but it's not in fat. It's not in visceral fat around your abdomen. Whereas even if your waist circumference is good, if you fall into that obese category, it's just a lot of extra weight for your heart to support. Uh, and, and there can be extra, extra risk there. Um, so what I'm hearing is like, again, nuance, 
but it's worth triangulating between BMI and waist circumference. Yes. Yeah. And I think what we mentioned at the beginning, I was just going to say what we mentioned at the uh, beginning of the whole book is, you know, all of these are um, individual points that, and taken in one kind of narrow context is not going to explain all of health. So um, even the, you know, what you just mentioned there about BMI and waist circumference, you may be good, but if you're not hitting some of the activity guidelines, um, then you might not actually be healthy because someone could meet that, but be super sedentary and, and, um, yeah, these aren't my terms because I think that they can be somewhat derogatory, but there's like skinny fat and fat and fit like you hear on Instagram. And I think that it's getting to, to what you said, but that's why I like this book and we'll keep moving through it. I think what you're getting at is people are like, oh, my BMI is normal. I'm okay. Or, oh, I hit the exercise guidelines. I'm okay. But what y'all are saying is actually like, you're okay if you're checking all of these boxes or at least most of these boxes, most of the time. Yeah. You just don't want to be, uh, if you were kind of rating them on a scale of one to 10, you just don't, don't want to be a zero in any of them. You at least want to have kind of some competency in each. Um, and, you know, maybe at different times of your life, you're putting more emphasis on one versus the other. Love it. So before we move on to sleep, I will share an anecdote. Listeners might remember a few episodes back. Well, now it's almost three months ago. Um, we talked about how I was going on a diet. And um, with the help of Kyle and his partner, Zach, um, I'm 195 pounds today and my fasciotomy, my surgery on my leg is tomorrow. And that was my goal down from 207. So it's about 12 pounds in 13 weeks. And shockingly, uh, I think we shared about this a little on a more, more recent podcast that, um, I was eating just like a really high fat diet and I had no idea. I never considered myself as being someone that would eat like a higher fat, lower carb diet. But when I started tracking my macronutrients for two weeks, that's what came up. And the biggest shift for me was to lower the fat in my diet and way increase the carbohydrates and protein. Um, so what did it actually look like? I cut scones out of my life, which is really unfortunate because there's a great bakery up the road, but I'd probably have like three scones a week. I've had zero scones. Um, I didn't drink at all. Four beers a week went down to zero. And um, I stopped pouring copious amounts of olive oil on everything. And when I felt hungry, I never let myself get hungry. I, I, like that was my rule. It's like you, you should never be hungry, but you should always start with an apple. And then if an apple doesn't fill you up, go to like an English muffin with a little bit of turkey. And then if that doesn't fill you up, well, then you're probably like really under eating. Um, and those were it, man. So like instead of snacking on the chips, I go to an apple. And what's crazy, back to your calories in, calories out, you do the math and like three to four scones a week and olive oil, like that's the pound a week. And it was really that simple for me. And again, this is like an N of one, but I just think it's so interesting because what I found in myself was that I was unknowingly eating what would be considered a lower carb diet. And that was what was leading to me having more body mass than I felt comfortable in. Did you uh, cut out your bulletproof coffee too, Brad? No, I kept doing that now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so you just noticed that, you know, the reason I think the reason you said you, uh, you know, it was easy in a way is that higher fat diets, you know, fat is nine calories per gram. So it's just much 
calories add up much faster in that. And so just kind of switching even the composition of your of your macros made it a bit easier to just putting a little bit more intention there to lose weight. Yep. All right. So let's go to the next section, which is sleep. So I'm wondering, Kyle, if you can just maybe outline, everybody knows that sleep is important. Like we've moved on from that, but maybe the um, sleep hygiene strategies that you guys suggest that you found have uh, worked. Yeah. So the ones that we have listed is first is timing, maintaining a consistent bed and wake time, um, establishing some sort of routine around when you sleep is usually a good idea. Uh, your body kind of has, you know, those natural processes that it's the time of night where you usually go to bed, you're probably going to start getting a little bit more tired. So making that as consistent as possible to get into that rhythm is a good idea. Um, avoiding naps during the day. Um, again, because if you take a nap during the day, it might throw off your sleep rhythm for that consistent bedtime. If you need to take a nap, making it less than 30 to 45 minutes with which I believe is under a sleep cycle. Um, so just making sure that it's not too long. So it, again, it doesn't extend the time that you go to bed at night. Avoiding alcohol and caffeine approximately four to six hours before bed to ensure a good night's sleep. Caffeine, that's kind of, um, and I'm going to forget the word here. Uh, caffeine's like effect usually falls around six hours. Um, that can change depending on the individual. So if you need to, just experimenting with that when you kind of notice that, oh, I'm not really feeling the effects of caffeine anymore. Myself, for example, um, I can't really have caffeine afternoon. Otherwise, I notice that I stay up much longer. Um, if you do experience heartburn, you want to avoid any food that triggers that four to six hours prior to bedtime. Um, same reasons as above. It just kind of extends that time that you can go to sleep and messes up with your rhythm. Temperature. It's best to maintain a cool temperature and ensure that there's good ventilation in the bedroom. I tend to like uh, 65 degrees in my room when I sleep. I like it really cold, but uh, and I think I've seen at one point that that is uh, kind of the quote unquote best recommended temperature, but that probably is going to be highly var variable depending on the person. I go 63. Dang, Steve. Yeah, but I also like to have like blankets on me and still feel cool. But um, um, yeah, I go super cold. If if I had 63, then I would be poor because I live <laughs> in Texas and our air conditioning would break. So no, we sleep at 72. Woo. Brutal. Man, I'd have no blankets at all if it was 72. Yeah, it might as well be camping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to pay like $500 in electricity and, uh, you know, ruin ruin the world and the climate. So Another reason to come to Asheville, Steve. This is, we do sleep at like 65 in the, the winter though, when it's cool and you don't need the air conditioning. So maybe it's just the uh, relative difference between the outside heat. 72 feels like 65 probably. Exactly. When you, when you come in from a walk, your evening walk and it's, it's 90 degrees outside, you know, 72 feels great. Yeah. So, and I also right. think this is, this is a topic that, um, it's a little like taboo to talk about, but I've had this conversation with more and more people and getting sleep is really important. If you've ever had an infant, you know 
why sleep deprivation falls under like international war torture categories because it sucks. Now, if you have an infant, you kind of have no choice. You're going to be getting tortured. But if you don't, um, a common barrier here is that, well, my partner likes it warmer than me. And the more people I talk to about this, the more people that like have this and they duke it out instead of just sleep separately. Um, and I'm a big proponent, like sharing a bed with a partner is nice, no doubt about it. But if you have a good relationship and one of you is not sleeping because of temperature, my sense is that the best thing for the longevity of your relationship would be for both of you to figure out how to get good sleep. So I'm a big proponent of sleeping separately if temperature is a barrier. There's also all kinds of gadgets where you can like heat one side of the bed and cool the other. I don't know how well those work. Um, but yeah, you can do the business during the day and then sleep well through the night. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I think I've heard of one called Chili Pad that is actually quite good if you do want to have kind of that separate uh, temperature. But yeah, I would agree with that that statement, Brad. I love sleeping in the basement in the summer because Caitlin runs cool. So she would like sleep at 72 and I'm at like 63 and one of us just gets screwed. So I just go in the basement where it's nice and cold and sleep like a baby. And it's not so bad. Sometimes I bring a Nanda. That's also where your, uh, also where your uh, workout room is, right? Do you sleep on the on the bench? I sleep on the bench, man. I'm always on the bench. All right. So um, you also talk about uh, reserving the bed just for sleep. So try to avoid using it for work or watching TV. We, we talked about this quite a bit in peak performance so that you're brain just dissociates. I'm in the bedroom. I'm in the bed. This is a time to sleep, not to get amped up. Um, and then the, the pre bedtime routine you mentioned very much in alignment with growth equation thinking that like, there's no, you know, just because Tim Ferriss does it, doesn't mean that that's the routine for you. But what's important is that if you are a person that benefits from some rigidity and constraints that you develop something that, that does work for you. And that can be quite individual. Yeah, and I would also add there just on sleep that um, I think with the kind of explosion of how the importance of sleep over the last couple of years, and you know it is very important, is sometimes I know at least in people I've talked to that can create a lot of anxiousness around getting to sleep or like if I don't go to sleep and get my eight hours and the rest of my day is ruined. Um, and I would just add in there that you know it's going to be okay on average if you get those seven to eight hours of sleep, you'll be fine. And if every now and then you have a string of nights where it's shorter, just try to keep kind of going throughout your day and know that you might feel a little bit tired, but that's okay too. You're not going to die. As I like to remind people, I wrote the practice of groundedness when Theo was between zero and 18 months and Theo was not a good sleeper. So I felt like shit, but I still did productive work. And um, I don't think that that period took years off my life. Yeah. And there's right, large so, variability just in how much sleep you might need. So, yeah. Kind of so let's move on. So, so, so the next thing is monitor the use of addictive substances. So smoking and tobacco use, if you listen to this podcast, you know that it is uh, deleterious to health. And if you are somebody that struggles with tobacco, then the best thing that you can do is reach out to a local 
therapist, behavioral therapy group, addiction medicine doctor to try to stop smoking. There are more resources than ever. You can just Google quit smoking. CDC has a wonderful guide. Let's move on to alcohol because alcohol is a lot more, um, well, people think it's more nuanced, but what you write here is that similar to smoking, alcohol has many adverse effects on the human body. Nonetheless, regular and or excessive consumption remains common. So my first question is, Kyle, do you consume alcohol? Yes. Okay. How frequently? Maybe one to two drinks a week, usually split with my partner. Not very often. Okay. So let's talk about alcohol because anytime Steve and I bring up kind of these basic foundational habits for health, sometimes we talk about this. And people somewhat jokingly, but you can can tell that there's like a little bit of seriousness will always comment, well, I'm not going to stop having my three beers, but three beers is actually like not very good for you. Um, So can you unpack when you put this guy together and you did the research, like what's a sane way to think about alcohol if you are someone that doesn't want to be completely abstinent? Hmm. I think that's actually a very large question. I don't know if I'll be able to answer all of that. Um, I would just say that, you know, at least for me, alcohol, especially as I've gotten older, I will, I will say like in my college years, I definitely drank more often. Um, but I just kind of view alcohol as something that can be used to you know, relax or can be fun in social settings. But I just have like a rule for myself that is one to two drinks is enough. I don't really feel like I need more than that. Um, But does that kind of get to your question, Brad? I don't know if I really have a great answer to that, to that there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of weaseling around the answer. But what I'm hearing you say is that um, if we're going to call a spade a spade, alcohol is pretty shitty for your body. And you should just remember that when you drink. And if you don't want to drink at all ever, that's fine. If you enjoy drinking in social situations, that's fine too. But just remember that like alcohol is deleterious for your body. And what's fascinating is when you stop drinking completely, you really recognize that when you reintegrate. Like I had like a single bourbon the other night. And when I went to sleep an hour later, I could like feel my heart beating in my neck. And for me, that's enough to be like, geez, like this is not good. And I think that I'm by no means like, you know, moral purity through my body um, or anything like that. But like just that feeling is like, eh, I don't know if like the benefit is worth the um, the cost. And maybe that's the best way to think about it is we so often just think about the benefit of alcohol consumption and it's become so normalized that I think that we're far too quick to, to think about the cost. Um, I also think there's probably a real difference here between health and performance. I think if your goal is health, the research that I've seen shows pretty clearly that you're probably okay with one drink a day. So you could have seven drinks a week. And you know, as far as we know, probably very little impact on health and longevity. But if your goal is performance to like feel super sharp physically or mentally, um, then I'd argue that less is more. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. All right. So we've got alcohol, the difficult one. Now let's go to the, the, the next part 
that you guys outline, which I think this is important and often overlooked, which is routine medical care. Why is this important? Yeah, so this one um, was most influenced, uh, or this section of the book was most influenced from um, some work from Barbell Medicine. And they're a, uh, a company that is composed of doctors who also uh, kind of coach in strength and conditioning. And their kind of mission is to bring a lot of um, the medical community um, and the strength and conditioning community together because they are so interlinked in some ways. Um, so these two pieces that we have, the blood pressure and the blood lipids, cholesterol, really come from them uh, and their recommendations. Um, but I think it's most important now uh, because there are, as we've written with many advances in technologies, you can get any test on under the sun and everyone is trying to say, you know, their own kind of pitch of why that's important. And they just happen to also be selling that test. Um, so we thought this was important just to kind of narrow down maybe what are the two that you want to focus on and um, maybe allow you to, uh, you know, get a little bit more of that signal from the noise of what everyone's trying to say that you, you need to get tested. Great. Fantastic. I'm just going to skip right on to the next one because I think this is interesting is pain self-management. And you write, mm -hmm. all humans experience pain and it can serve as feedback and the catalyst for change. And I think often what, what we think of as pain is like avoidance. But mm -hmm. what I hear you guys talking about is pain is information. So mm -hmm. maybe can you help the listener kind of distinguish what that means, um, especially in training? And one more quick thing to add there, the difference between, and this is a part of what Steve's saying, but the difference between tissue pain and nervous system pain, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, so uh, especially within the context of training, pain can really serve as feedback um, of, too much exposure to stimulus. Um, so, you know, you kind of want to see it as a way to potentially adjust training. Um, and, you know, pain is a very uh, large topic. There's um, pain that, you know, is a result of some sort of structural damage. Uh, you could say pain is, hey, that was just a really hard workout. And I had to sit in that, you know, interval for a second, which would also cause change. And uh, cause adaptation. Um, and I think to your question, Brad, the, the kind of difference is a lot of the emerging research is kind of showing that, especially in cases of chronic pain, um, the structural damage that may have initially been present may not be there anymore, but the body, for lack of better explanation, has essentially created a neural link between the two. So it's wanting to protect the area. So you can often have instances where nothing's wrong with the individual uh, anymore, but the body kind of remembers that there was something wrong there. So anytime that you go into a position or uh, do something too fast that maybe caused pain or an injury in the past, it kind of makes you feel that even though there's nothing underlying actually wrong. Um, so it's a very complex topic that... Um, can be very distressing and upsetting depending uh, how long something's been there. But 
one of the reasons we wanted to include it is because it kind of puts a little bit more power back with the individual to understand that I can cause or not I can cause, I can um, have more ability to change what's happening if I can understand kind of what the differences in pain might be. So here's a quick pointed question. Um, something that comes up a lot, Steve and I were just facilitating a retreat and this question came up is how do I know the difference between pain that is telling me I'm actually going to re-injure my hamstring or Achilles or biceps tendon versus pain that is just the nervous system false alarm going off because I'm protecting myself. So how do you coach someone back from an injury that four or five months down the load, their, excuse me, down the road, the recovery is tracking, but then they start feeling pain as a coach what's your kind of mental model for approaching that? Because again, everyone wants to know, like, is this a phantom pain? Is this a nervous system pain? Or is this actually my tissue about to tear again? Yeah, I think there's two ways I would kind of look at that. The first being if they're experiencing some pain during a session, for example, with a particular movement, my general rule of thumb is that if that uh, pain persists for more than 48 hours, we've probably overloaded it in some way. And then from there, we'd want to take a look at the program and see, you know, are we doing more than we have in some time? Have we been doing, um, uh, you know, are we far into a training block and maybe we want to take a week or two off to maybe desensitize that area? Maybe we've just built a lot of fatigue. Um, those would kind of be my first two ways to kind of go about it. Um, but really with pain, it's all about finding kind of a place to start. So um, what we have written here is reducing volume, which would be the amount of work that you're doing, reducing intensity or the effort. So if you have a certain amount of weight, you just in this example, let's use a barbell. If you have a certain amount of weight on the bar, reducing the weight until there isn't pain present. So there might be like a threshold where once you go over that threshold, you experience pain. And also the same with the range of motion or range of movement, where maybe once I squat below parallel, then I have pain, but above parallel, I don't. Um, but to, I guess really to answer your question of how do I know, um, I don't know if there's an exact answer there. It's more of a, I have to not be afraid of this pain monitor is it continuing to get worse is it just some some slight discomfort and the next day it's gone um and see if over time if the pain isn't increasing or decreasing is there something else we can change that may allow us to still target a similar movement pattern or get a similar effect but that causes no pain yeah on the topic of nervous system pain i'll share this anecdote and i won't name any names and this is not medical advice, physical therapy advice, coaching advice. It's just fascinating uh, story. Uh, uh, a professional athlete, an endurance athlete that was struggling with uh, proximal hamstring issues. So that's upper hamstring months down the road was just experiencing residual pain that was holding this athlete back from really going at it. And this athlete had access to imaging and all the, the, the information possible on what's going on structurally. And structurally, everything worked fine. So the coach in consultation with the doctor that was overseeing this patient's rehab 
said, screw it. You're going to go out and do a three by one mile workout all out. I don't care how much your hamstring hurts, like run the workout as hard as you can. And the, the athlete did it. I mean, they're kind of at like wit's end and that was it. Their hamstring stopped hurting. Um, so that again, don't try that at home. That had a lot of like insight, but I think it goes to show that like if the nervous system alarm is misfiring, sometimes the answer is to reset the alarm. And the only way to do that is to really show the body that your hamstring is actually not going to tear if you run hard. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, if anyone listening is in pain, I do really recommend to read the the book that we reference here, the why do I hurt? Um, and I'm blanking on the, uh, the author's name, but if you just put that on Amazon, it'll come up. And it's just a really good short 80 page book with a lot of graphics that kind of goes into this, um, especially with things surrounding chronic pain. Um, and the other, the other, the last thing I would add is just, uh, you know, sometimes or often pain or um, increased bouts of pain that are chronic usually are associated with um, external stress. So if you have, you know, if work's extra hard, you're not getting a, a lot of sleep, you might notice that back pain flares up. Um, and that's often associated because the body is going to just see that as stress, whether it was associated with actually using the back or not. And it's going to feel like it's under threat for lack of a better term. And that's going to be a response if, um, if back pain is something you've experienced for a long time. So All right, so you have one more section, which I want to quickly get to, which is mental health. Um, you outlined some wonderful suggestions on here, but just maybe briefly, why did you feel like it was important to say, hey, mental health is one of these uh, these big segments that we need to look after and, and look at? Yeah, I just really feel that, you know, uh, health in general is is a mix of physical um, societal economic mental um, things and i just felt that or i guess uh, toby and i who created this book felt that this was important to include in here to um, kind of start people if they're not have not been exposed to this start people on um, a basic path of which to start examining this um, because it you know mental health i think affects every other kind of health bucket you might think of really love it so listeners can dive into the guide as we said it'll be on our show notes at thegrowtheq.com you can see all the outlines not only in the the mental health aspect but everything um kyle i just want to thank you this is a, a wonderful guide that that fits right in with what we're doing at uh the growth equation and, uh, and thanks so much for the conversation and, and kind of exploring these topics and bringing in, um, you know, someone who lives this every day and, and helps people and guides through it. Yeah, thank you for having me on, uh, Brad and Steve. And I hope I was able to provide some useful uh, tidbits of information there. Um, but yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, listeners, it's Kyle Klachenko, uh, co-founder, co-owner, and head coach at Strength Ratio. Um, we'll include, as Steve mentioned, the guide that we've been discussing in the show notes, as well as a link to Kyle's page for those of you that want to learn more. 
And uh, with that, we will catch you all next Wednesday. Uh, So stay tuned. And until then, uh, work hard, rest harder. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.